Welcome to the Acme Conversations podcast, where we explore the world of the moving image and its connections to politics, society, culture, and art. This is a recording of a live event, and it may reference visual material. You can view this on our YouTube channel. Great. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Acme Conversations. Uh, my name's Ari, and I'm one of the public programs producers here at Acme, and I'm really, really um, pleased that you've all come along to hear about our awesome discussion tonight. Uh, before we begin, I'd like to uh, acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners of the land that we're standing on here today, and pay up our respects to their elders past and present, and also any elders who may be in attendance. So, welcome to tonight's instalment in Acme's Conversation Series that takes place every Tuesday at 6.30pm. Acme Conversation celebrates bold, experimental ideas, discussion and debate around the moving image and its connections to the world in which we live, from politics to society, culture and art. Come in and join the conversation with us every Tuesday. So this week, we explore how us superheroes and supervillains reflect our real-world concepts of ethics, justice and morality. In coming weeks, we look forward to discussing diverse topics, including gender diversity on screen next week, and finally, to wrap up the series, anime and feminism. So I'd like to begin by introducing you to our host and our moderator for this evening, Martin Pedler. Martin is a writer and academic who focuses on superhero stories. He's published chapters and presented internationally on subjects like how the Flash runs in a medium without movement and why Doctor Doom cried after 9-11. He's also been a long-time pop culture critic for Bookslut, Time Out Melbourne, Triple J Magazine and more. He's the writer of the 2012 feature film Exit and has several other screenplays in development. Can I please get a round of applause for our moderator, Martin? Hi everybody, uh, thanks for coming out tonight. So we're all going to give short presentations on superheroes, ethics and justice. Then we're going to have a bit of a conversation and we'll open up the um, questions for the audience. So first of all, we wanted to start with a quote from Alan Moore. There we go. This is an imaginary story which may never happen, but then again may, about a perfect man who fell from the sky and did only good. That's Alan Moore describing Superman in Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow back in 1986. Tonight we're going to talk about what it means for a superhero to do only good. It's a beautiful idea, a utopian idea, and perhaps a childlike idea. But contrast that with this random tweet I found. <coughs> Batman is a one percenter beating up the mentally ill. <laughs> so who's doing good now as a superhero? As the recent Lego Batman movie, which was surprisingly sophisticated, pointed out, Batman can seem more like a villain than a hero. He's a brutal loner who uses fear and terror and menacing iconography. In fact, the only thing that seems to stop Batman from becoming a villain is that he does not kill. Look at the five evil Batman from DC Comics' current batshit crazy storyline, Metal. There's an Atlantean, a Green Lantern Batman, a Doomsday Batman, a Flash Batman, all evil. It's actually pretty spectacular. Um, they're all different from the true Batman as they've been corrupted by killing. First, the killing of their enemies and then the killing of their friends. Now, before someone in the audience calls me out on this, yes, Batman did kill in his earliest incarnations. You can see him with a smoking gun there on the left. But it didn't take long before the no-killing creed was in place, as you can see on the right. One of my favourite quotes about it is from Superman in the series Kingdom Come, where he says, when you scratch everything else away from Batman, you're left with someone who doesn't want to see anybody else die. But while most superheroes don't kill, 
they almost all fight. Action is baked into the bedrock of superhero stories, whether that's fistfights or heat vision or psychic battles. Um, and that action usually takes the form of violence. This presents something of a moral quandary for some superhero fans. For example, Daredevil and the Punisher have a decades-long debate about whether it's okay to kill your enemies or not. We saw this play out most recently in season two of the Netflix series. Daredevil holds tight to the fact that killing is wrong. What's not wrong, though, is kicking the shit out of everyone in sight, as he does in this famous fight scene from season one. Here we go. Okay, so, as you can see, killing bad, beating the shit out of people, totally fine. Um, and 
as a friend of mine pointed out, those guys are not okay. It's not like everyone gets up after that and goes, well, I've learned my lesson, Daredevil. Those people are permanently maimed and injured after a fight like that. Um, so it's pretty easy to mount the argument that anti-heroes who kill, like the Punisher, are there to convince you that anything less than killing is somehow morally justified. It's also why at the end of the recent Wonder Woman movie, Diana defeats Ares, the god of war, with more war. As Liam did point out earlier, she does do it with love, but love kind of is a blast of warlike energy um, at the end. She, it might have made more sense for her to defeat him with peace, but that kind of ending is resisted by superhero stories. So superhero stories default to the good gunslinger motto, shoot last, but shoot fastest. They're reactive, not proactive. In fact, proactive heroes always risk, or always risk um, becoming villains. Every so often we'll get a story about Superman setting out to risk the world and he always becomes some kind of dictator in the process, like you can see here. Or whenever Batman's I have a plan for everything tactics come out, they're often used against him, his teammates, or the world. Um, this is why superheroes are agents of the status quo and can never seem to change the world for the better. There's a famous Superman story about this where aliens say that all he's doing by saving humanity over and over again is contributing to our cultural lag, again, preserving the status quo. So as the Superman comic once asked, what's so funny about truth, justice, and the American way? And what does the American way now mean for a global superhero? In a recent article, the academic Ian Gordon suggested that Superman's inability to change the world forces him to focus on smaller acts of good, and that stops him from becoming part of the interventionist American state. It keeps him a positive symbol of American power, and that lets him have a global appeal he might not otherwise have. In fact, Superman once gave up his US citizenship, saying truth, justice in the American way. It's just not enough anymore. The world was more complicated than fighting for just American values. Yes, this caused all the outrage that you'd expect in conservative media at the time, and I believe it's been written out of continuity now anyway. Um, so superhero stories often confuse complicated with adult, and adult with violent, and violent with kills people. So one of my favourite pieces on this is this story where the Riddler has a moral crisis about what's happened to the Batman story since the 1960s. The Joker's killing people for God's sake, he says. Did I miss something? Was I away when they changed the rules? As Ben Saunders wrote in his book, Do the Gods Wear Capes? Superheroes can be seen as the wish that things were otherwise. I love that quote. Otherwise from the real world that's all around us. But of course, social realism has been part of superheroes since their very beginnings. Superman originally took on crooked landlords and corrupt officials. The X-Men have always been free-floating metaphors for all kinds of discrimination. And now Australia has Clever Man, which riffs on the X-Men through the lens of indigenous culture, positing a race of so-called subhumans known as Hairies, who are persecuted and exploited by the wealthy. There's a bit of Spider-Man in there too, with the lead character at doing his bad behavior that he then has to face when he gets the superhero qualities with great power, great responsibility, you know the drill. Let's have a look. Hey, honey. Hey! Oh, I'm coming. Wait, wait. Oh, look at you all growing up.
Hoping you can tell me why Uncle Jimmy picked me. I gave up wondering why Jimmy did what he did. <laughs> Worry's gonna be mighty pissed off. <laughs> Ever since you two were little, Worry's been dreaming of becoming a clever man. He's been waiting for this day all his life, and now his little brother... Half-brother. ...steals his thunder. It's a big responsibility, Colin. Clever man is more than just a title. Whatever reason Jimmy had, you got a chance to start over. Yeah. This belonged to your father. Kept his uni stuff in it. Where'd you get that? Found it. After the accident. Put other stuff in, photos, anything I could grab at the time, which wasn't much. Past is the past. Can't change it. All you can do is try to do better. Your father, he wasn't perfect. He was a man. With all the faults of a man. And he was your father. I was thinking, though, that reality intersects with superheroes in other ways, too. Um, I wanted to talk briefly about The Punisher. Now, there's a constant refrain in comics that Batman is the best superhero because anybody could be Batman. You know, he's just a normal man, except as the new Justice League movie points out, his real superpower is being rich. Um, but if anyone can be Batman, then anyone can be The Punisher. The superpower of Marvel's anti-hero is guns. Amazingly, back in the 90s, Marvel used to publish these Punisher Armoury comics. Does anyone remember these? Which were basically just pictures of weapons with loving narration about how useful they were. My favourite thing is, in the you can see in the tiny top of the co cover, it says, no ads, even though the whole thing is basically just an ad for real-life weaponry. Um, and as an aside, I know that Batman's no-guns policy has wavered throughout the years too. We have, this is the weapon of the enemy, we do not need it, we will not use it, compared to Zack Snyder's version of the Batmobile from the latest films there on the right, which has guns proudly mounted on the hood. In fact, movie heroes tend to be more bloodthirsty than their comic book counterparts. Even as back in Batman Begins, Batman tells Ra's al Ghul, I won't kill you, but I don't have to save you, and leaves him to die. Anyway, a few years ago, I found a Marvel editor in print stating that the Punisher had killed 48,502 people in comics since the, his character first appeared. All of them apparently deserved it, because that's the Punisher's true superpower. He never kills anybody who doesn't deserve it. The minute he does, the entire character falls apart. Um, but moral reality hits the Punisher differently than it does most superheroes or even anti-heroes. After the Las Vegas massacre where 58 people were killed and over 500 injured, Marvel and Netflix pulled their Punisher panel from New York Comic Con. As one article put it, the gun violence in the US means there'll never be a right time for a Punisher TV series. Of course, the Punisher TV series is about to drop in about two days' time. At first, though, Marvel didn't pull an even more alarming exhibition from that same Comic Con. 
They teamed up with the defence contractor Northrop Grumman, even producing a comic to promote them. You can see the ad on the left. If you dream of working at Stark Enterprises, in reality, you should work for Northrop Grumman. This happily ignores the fact that Tony Stark gave up being an arms manufacturer to become Iron Man. So even Marvel's own continuity knew this partnership was a terrible idea, but morally speaking, but Marvel's corporate overlords seemingly didn't understand that. In conclusion, I guess I had two last examples of this no-killing moral policy at work. In one, Batman actually saves the Joker from death row from a crime the Joker didn't commit. Just this one crime. He still committed all the other crimes, just not this one. Every breath you take you owe to me, says Batman. But I wonder what would Batman think if he realised his moral code of never killing is perhaps just because the marketplace always demands the Joker be available for more stories. And in the other, Superman gives my favourite explanation for why killing your enemies is a bad idea. Execution's a walk in the park. These no-nonsense solutions of yours just don't hold water in a complex world of jet-powered apes and time travel. So the world of superheroes is regularly so insane that refusing to kill isn't just morality, it's a new kind of practicality. And on that note, I'm going to pass the microphone and the clicker oh, over to Brooke Maggs. Now, Brooke Maggs is an award-winning narrative designer and writer for games, VR, and other creative industries. She's currently working on The Gardens Between, an adventure puzzle game, and Paperbark, a game about the Australian bush. Her personal projects include a science fiction novel for which she was shortlisted for the Ray Cop Writer's Residency, and she's in the early stages of a superhero noir novel. Her interest in the superhero genre is moral ambiguity, and she's drawn to superheroes who are extraordinary and flawed people. Please welcome her. Yeah, well, we, you basically just covered all of this, so I'm going to move to the next slide um, <laughs> very quickly. I wanted to talk about Batwoman. So I loved superheroes when I was a kid. Um, my, uh, I, the one thing I asked for one birthday was a Batman costume. Um, and then leading up to my birthday, my mom and my family would joke that I was actually getting a Barbie outfit. And I was like, no, I want a Batman one. And, and I got it and then never took it off for ages. Um, and then um, I grew up, I think I just moved away from superheroes for a while, but I've definitely gotten back into them, um, you know, along with all the new Marvel movies and things happening on TV. But one of my... Favourite, so I was specifically looking for a female superhero that I could read. And I found Batwoman. Um, and these are kind of old now. These came out about 2013, but I recently reread them. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about Batwoman because I think she's amazing. <laughs> and also because um, of, I guess, the, contro the con controversy around her um, being that um, she initially started out as... Batwoman was added to the, the Bat family um, to give more variety, but also to be, I guess, the woman counterpart to, to Batman. But early on, she was Kathy Kane, and she had a lot of, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but she had a lot of, like, um, equipment that was, like, in her lipstick and in her handbag, and it was, like, these little, you know, kind of really, really girly things. Um, and then when she was remade for this series or recreated... Um, for New 52, she was announced to be um, someone who uh, was a lesbian and also to, to have more diversity. DC was saying, um, DC Comics Senior Vice President and Executive Director stated, 
Um, it was from conversations we had expanding the DC universe, looking at levels of diversity. We wanted to have a cast that is much more reflective of today's society. So I think what we will eventually get into talking about is about how our heroes reflect our society and what the hero and what our heroes say about us. Um, so, but first I want to talk about origin stories and where Batwoman comes from. So. Her mother and twin sister are kidnapped by terrorists as well as her and her father works for NATO and he comes and rescues them. But he is only in time to rescue Kate um, and unfortunately her mother and her sister are killed by the time he arrives. So Kate follows in her father's footsteps and joins the army but is dishonourably discharged when her sexuality is revealed and so she goes on to train with her father to become Batwoman. So he's very much present throughout these comics um, and helping her out, um, which I find really interesting. But also more comes up, I guess, with um, one of the things I loved about this too was just how um, bold it was in terms of Kate um, meeting Maggie, first of all. So Maggie is a detective and she works on the force and naturally um, that starts to create problems with the things Batwoman does and the things that I guess the police would would rather do or rather her not do. Um, but throughout um, Kate also, um, what's interesting is that um, I think we've only had our first female lead really this year being Wonder Woman just made in the movies, but there are, there are interesting characters in the comics um, who have, you know, whose personal lives are affected by, um, you know, by being a superhero. And one of the panels that I love here down the bottom is when um, Kate basically has a bit of a martyr complex and is quite, can be quite selfish. And Maggie calls her out on it and says, you know, you're going to climb down off your cross um, and you're going to let us help you or you're going to pack up all of your crap and move out. Um, and that kind of relationship is really great. Um, and here, this is where Kate reveals to Maggie who she is by proposing to her, saying that I'm Batwoman, essentially, and, you know, I'm Kate under the mask and will you marry me? Um, so the best thing, I guess, about this is issue 17 was the milestone, was where she proposed. But in September 2013, um, co-authors J.H. Williams and W. Haddon Blackman announced that they would leave Batwoman after the December issue because conflicts over the storylines for Batwoman. They weren't allowed to expand Killer Croc's backstory, first of all, but most importantly, um, they weren't allowed to show Kate and Maggie getting married. Um, the reason being um, eventually was superheroes shouldn't have happy personal lives. Um, but I wonder if there's more going on there, <laughs> if in terms of the politics and what they were and weren't willing to commit to um, in terms of following through with their diversity edict. Um, so I think the other thing too is that, um, where am I up to? In, in volume six, um, when the newer writers took over, um, Kate's personal life, or sorry, Kate's life as Batwoman started to create problems for Maggie's daughter. You know, she would bring bring the violence home, I suppose, and this is where 
Um, her daughter discovers her in the bathroom, I guess, cleaning up, you know, blood and things like that. And she mentions how her life has consequences. They go on to eventually write Maggie out by the fact that she's in a custody battle with her daughter and because um, her ex-husband resents Kate for whatever reason, Kate does her martyr thing and says, well, I'm going to break up with you and move out so that you can, you know, um, keep your daughter, essentially. Um, and it's kind of posed as a heroic thing to do, but it also feels a little bit like um, copping out in a way. Um, you know, because Batwoman does, you know, many violent things throughout the comics. One would think she might put on the mask and just dangle the ex-husband over a building for a while, or <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, it was a really interesting decision, I thought. Um, and, and it kind of lost its, uh, I don't know, it lost something, I think, when the writers left. Um, and lastly, I wanted to also um, pose or, or I guess tell you about the fact that Beth survived, but Beth became a supervillain. So being twins, the comics, and I think could have played more on the fact that there is a narrow line between superhero and supervillain. Um, and it's played out between these sisters who love each other, um, but are ultimately on completely different sides of the fence. And is the line the fact that her father rescued her and you know not her sister? And she constantly says, you know, it's not my sister's fault. She was actually adopted by the religion of crime. And after that, you know, the rest is history. Supervillain status, yeah, as you do. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so, you know, I, I think the moral ambiguity in Kate for me is really interesting, but also that's posed between, I guess, being a superhero created for diversity, but then that storyline not actually being allowed to be carried through um, is, yeah, definitely worth chatting more about on the panel. So, yeah, thank you. Oh, thanks. <laughs> oh, yeah. There you go. Thank um, you. Next up, we have Dr. Liam Burke. He's the um, Cinema and Screen Studies Coordinator at the Swinburne University of Technology. He has written and edited a number of books on comic books and cinema, including superhero movies, fan phenomena Batman, and the comic book film adaptation, exploring modern Hollywood's leading genre. Liam is the chief investigator on the Superheroes and Me research project with ACME. He recently directed the documentary short At Home, which was screened at a number of international film festivals and was broadcast on Irish television. So please welcome him tonight. Uh, so, uh, it's not really anything there for me to do to introduce myself, so I'll, I'll launch straight into it. Uh, I mean, this version of Batman is probably the most familiar version of Batman, but you're all superhero fans, or at least have an interest in superheroes, so you know that Batman didn't always look like this. He wasn't always the Dark Knight. There have been times, in fact, across his almost 80-year career when he's been practically Technicolor. And often these changes are in response to kind of wider trends and societal pressures, as the guys have already alluded to in the kind of the late 1950s during a particularly conservative period, Batman became the head of a larger Batman family. A media scholar, Andy Medhurst, notes of the hero's ever-changing identity that Batman serves as a cultural thermometer, taking the temperature of the times. And I mean, this is certainly true of Batman, but it's kind of true of all superheroes. And it's one of the reasons why this panel is interesting and why they're interesting to media scholars generally. Because unlike an Oscar-winning movie or a Pulitzer Prize-winning play, 
superhero stories, particular superhero stories in comics, are rarely self-consciously produced. And as a consequence, they're actually a much more accurate and honest reflection of changing interests and anxieties and interests down through the, through the years. So for instance, we could talk about the emergence of superheroes on the comic book page in the late 1930s, uh, in which they were kind of a welcome response to the Great Depression. And as Martin's already alluded to, uh, far from the big blue boy scout we're familiar with today, when Superman was introduced in Action Comics number one, he was a social reformer. He fought uh, white beaters. He uh, captured crooked politicians. An attitude at the time that, and an approach that would have chimed with readers. Move forward a couple of years, though, the rise of fascism in Europe found many linking the comic book Superman with the Nazis' misuse of Nietzsche's uh, Ubermensch uh, concept. And so there was a need to sort of diffuse that criticism. And uh, national publications, which will become DC Comics, to diffuse that criticism, make Superman the patriot that we're more familiar with today. He joins a cavalcade of costumed heroes in the war effort. Uh, this reflective kind of quality of superheroes continues up to the, the emergence of the Marvel Universe in the 1960s, where the heroes who populated this burgeoning Marvel Universe gained their abilities through disastrous space missions or science experiments gone awry. These irradiated icons were equally cursed and blessed by their newfound abilities. And this, of course, articulated conflicting attitudes to the rapid technological innovations of the time. And you can continue forward to Punisher, which we've already discussed, uh, how he was a response to increasing inner city violence, or even the popularity of disco, which gave us this uh, misguided character, Dazzler. Okay. She was misguided. <laughs> uh, but uh, so when the first feature-length adaptation of Spider-Man is released in the summer, well, the, the North American uh, summer of 2002, and it breaks all sorts of box office records, cultural commentators are looking to the zeitgeist to furnish a reason for the unprecedented popularity of cinema superheroes, and they didn't have to look far. Uh, I mean, if you can probably uh, see from this image, this is a pre-production, early promotional still for Spider-Man. You can see in the reflective lenses, the World Trade Center. The film was in production at the time the, of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, and its success so soon after that terrorist attack found many uh, linking its, its success to the sort of reassurance it provided to uh, an American audience rocked by 9-11. And this makes sense, because you know, superheroes were never more popular on the comic book page than when they were turning over Axis tanks or punching Hitler on the jaw. And so this kind of four-color rebuttal to a real-world threat found many going, oh, well, they've provided reassurance in the 1940s. Well, surely they're doing it again now, but in cinema. But this doesn't quite make sense because superheroes kind of chafed or there was a tension between superheroes in their classical iteration and the kind of sentiment of post 9-11 uh, media where the mood was heroes among us rather than heroes above. It was about kind of celebration of community, first responders and the like. And you saw those in some of the comic book tributes like this one uh, to those uh, paramedics and first responders and so on. 
But superheroes, that doesn't really work for superheroes because superheroes are the latest iteration of a mythological tradition of exceptional individuals who seek revenge for injustices wrought upon themselves, their homes, and society. Or as Tony Stark would put it to Loki in The Avengers. Because if we can't protect the Earth, you can be damn well sure we'll avenge it. And many of these heroes are, of course, not sanctioned by the groups they seek to protect and could best be described as vigilantes. And uh, probably the, one of the kind of the best early examples of this was Stanley and Steve Ditko's Spider-Man, who was kind of an early example of this equally cursed and blessed approach to superheroes. The first Spider-Man film, the 2002 film, was in production at the time of the World Trade Center attacks. And if you look at the finished film, which was released uh, about nine months later, you can discern a tension between the classical versions of the character, the character treated as a menace by the people of New York, and a need to kind of chime with uh, post 9-11 sentiment. So uh, as one example, I'll show you a montage where uh, Spider-Man is first established as a hero in New York, and these kind of vox pops, man in the street interviews are used to demonstrate the conflicting opinions of the people of New York to his appearance. I see the web, and it's his signature, and, and I know Spider-Man was here. The guy protects us, you know? He protects the people. Ah, some kind of freaky Lewis something. Wackadoo. He stinks, and I don't like him. So you can see how there's this kind of, uh, away from the lights, you can see how there's this sort of conflicting opinion. Some people think he's a savior, some people think he's a menace, and this is typical of the characters he appeared in the comic book page. However, Across the film, you can see that there are a lot of sequences that try to diminish this aspect of the character, this threatening, individualistic, uh, vigilante aspects. No more so than the climax of the film, where the people of New York need to rally to Spider-Man's side and help him against the Green uh, Goblin. And this sequence was described by the filmmakers as being added post 9-11 in a response to that, the, kind of the, the spirit of the time. It's time to die! So scenes such as this where the, where the hero's wings are clipped and he needs the, the help of ordinary people serve to emphasize a community where everyone is special and everyone can be a hero. But as the decades sort of progress, this kind of first decade of comic book movies, uh, the, the integration of the hero, which was at odds with the source material, in the case of Spider-Man, and odds with the conventions of uh, the superhero generally began to kind of chafe and that tension became more obvious and, and, and uh, kind of reared its head more often. And you started to see the emergence of films in which the hero is treated as a threatening individual. They began to dominate the genre. And of course, while these didn't tally with the mood of post 9-11 entertainments, they did forward a mythology and indeed an ideology that had much more resonance post 9-11. So following 9-11, uh, U.S. President George Bush, uh, he employed a lot of Western tropes. Uh, up until you know the first nine months or so, he was in the office. He you know he went to work in a suit, and he was you know he, he was reasonably sensible, and everyone thought he was going to be a lame duck president. 
post 9-11, suddenly these folkisms start to pepper his language. He starts to wear the cowboy hat more. And you know, a key example of that was his response to the question about six days after 9-11 when he gave his first Pentagon briefing, which was, you know, do you want bin Laden dead? And he responded like this. I just remember, I'm, all I'm doing is remembering when I was a kid. I remember that uh, they used to put out there in the Old West a, a wanted poster. It said, wanted, dead, or alive. All I want, America wants him brought to justice. Media scholar Stacey Takas uh, describes how this rhetoric, which was successful at home if not overseas, allowed the US government to portray its actions as those of a reluctant gunslinger, forced by circumstances to resort to violence. Now, you know, these kind of uh, Western tropes notwithstanding, it didn't really lead to a re-emergence of the superhero, the cowboy on screen. The Western, since its revisionist turn in the 1950s, has always struggled to kind of slip into the black and white morality that marked the genre's classical period. But fortunately, superheroes are part of that same mythological tradition. The cowboy is a kind of an individualistic hero and was well-placed in a country, in a presidency, that valorized the lone gunslinger and adopted preemptive, almost vigilante-like policies in its foreign policy. This became the preferred right-wing reading of The Dark Knight, with many conservative commentators like Andrew Clavin and others suggesting that the superhero's use of extraordinary rendition and illegal surveillance to stop a terrorist threat validated the Bush era's uh, war on terror tactics. And I mean, that is certainly the right-wing reading of, of that movie, but what's also important about The Dark Knight is released in 2008 alongside Iron Man and alongside Hancock, it represented a shift in the superhero movie genre from the kind of classical conventions, the simple black and white morality, to more self-aware films that question the morality and the ethics of the hero. So for instance, uh, released in 1978, Superman the movie, the Christopher Reeve version, concludes like this. This country is safe against Superman, thanks to you. No, sir. Don't thank me, Warden. We're all part of the same team. However, in the more recent adaptation, Man of Steel, the US military arrests and attempts to control Superman with his efforts to convince them that they're on the same side met with skepticism. Then I'll ask the obvious question. How do we know you won't one day act against America's interests? I grew up in Kansas, General. About as American as it gets. Look, I'm here to help. But it has to be on my own terms. And you have to convince Washington of that. Similarly, uh, you know, Spider-Man in the end of the Spider-Man, the original Spider-Man trilogy, is kind of given this parade. He's given the key to the city, the people of New York celebrate him. But by the time you get to the Amazing Spider-Man reboot in 2012, he is branded an outlaw by Captain George Stacy, who argues that Spider-Man's seemingly pro-social actions are actually the unintended consequence of a personal vendetta. And even just last year's two big superhero movies, Batman v Superman and Captain America's Civil War, centered their premise around the collateral damage caused by these heroes' individualistic actions. So if superheroes are cultural thermometers, what do today's costume-clad characters say about our interests and our anxieties? If nothing else, they seem to suggest that the audience has grown familiar, arguably tired with the conventions of the superhero movie genre, and demand a more thorough examination of the heroes, their place in the world, and also their ethics. And we might talk about that a little bit more now.
Um, I guess let's start broad and say, is there a difference between a superhero and a vigilante then? Yes. Super okay, that's... <laughs> I mean, superheroes are impossible to define. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is books and theses uh, written all about trying to define superheroes. Do you consider the origin of the superhero in 1938 with the arrival of Superman, which has the dual identity, mm -hmm. the costume, the special powers, all of which are kind of the key attributes people identify? Or do you go back to mythological mm -hmm. uh, antecedents? Or even more closely, do you think of characters like Zorro or, mm -hmm. or Robin Hood? So superheroes are impossible to divine. Mm -hmm. uh, they are often deputized in some mm -hmm. cases. So, you know, uh, the 1960s Adam West Batman was deputized. We were reminded he was deputized to sort of quieten any parental concern. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there are vigilantes, fortunately, in the real world mm -hmm. who are not superheroic in any way. <laughs> the, even if they don't have uh, whatever about costumes and capes, they don't seem to have the, the sort of morality or the, 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 the kind of the, the higher ideals that we associate with the, mm -hmm. the best of the superheroes. One of my favourite nods in the Batman comics was that they still have the bat signal on the roof of police headquarters, but that no policeman was allowed to turn it on. You had to get Commissioner Gordon's secretary to turn it on because she wasn't technically a cop, and thereby it wasn't a <laughs> sanctioned activity. So they've always had to dance around this idea of, yeah. is Batman a vigilante? Is he a cop? Or is he in a liminal area between the two? Mm. That's really interesting, though, because it provides a lot of rich conversation to have about all of that and and i think when so interesting that the secretary turns it on that like when you have that discussion around the cops kind of well then the superheroes are the power fantasy for the cops almost if yeah. you know what i mean and that's really interesting too because what does that say about yeah well i mean for superheroes <laughs> More to justice. Work, there has to be a an absence of uh proper crime control measures. Mm. So in the Batman films, that's certainly the post-Mitter era, that's positioned as the cops are corrupt, or largely corrupt, mm -hmm. there's a few good cops, or they're incompetent, or the threats that are coming, like Thanos or whatever, yeah. are so far beyond their ability to work uh, that there's no way to, that, and so it's this absence that creates the need for the superhero, but the kind of the tragedy of the superhero, like the Western gunslinger is, they're defending a community that will not defend itself, but once they usher in that peace, they have no place in that community. Mm -hmm. So we saw that perhaps most uh, prominently in The Dark Knight, where uh, Harry Dent is saying, you know, we've been happy to let Batman clean up our streets until now, and now suddenly you want to get rid of him because it's inconvenient. Mm -hmm. And that's the tragedy of the superhero, that they, that they will defend the community, but that they can never uh, sublimate, they have to sublimate that desire for community themselves, mm -hmm. constantly, you know, uh, have to let love interests go, as you kind of demonstrated, mm -hmm. to answer a higher calling for justice. Mm -hmm. And then when they usher in that piece, they have to kind of die or quietly go off mm -hmm. for, there's a reboot, mm -hmm. but yeah. They mark themselves as outsiders, first of all, but then they're marked as outsiders when they actually clean up the streets yeah. and pieces yeah. ushered, so they're, they're twice othered in a way yeah. when that happens, which is interesting. I feel like we've seen a lot more state-sanctioned superheroes in the last, say, 20 years, both in comics yeah. and in film. You know, the Avengers basically work for S.H.I.E.L.D. at first. Um, yeah. You had a lot of that in comics where we had a kind of superheroes becoming soldiers yeah. almost more so. Do you think that's a cultural shift we should have expected post 9-11? Definitely. Uh, Jim Lee, the uh, X-Men and Batman artist, said uh, the government is the modern version of radiation. 
So radiation used to be the reason everyone got their superpowers, now it's the government. Right. So you had, uh, and it was even happening before 9-11, where there was, in order to justify or validate or even explain mm -hmm. uh, where these characters came from, they were state-sanctioned. So the ultimate imprint mm -hmm. or version of the Avengers are a state-sanctioned version of the Avengers. They worked for S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, that was obviously the, the kind of the basis of the movie. And you had this sort of militaristic uh, inflection. So whereas Batman in 89 had wonderful toys, in 2005, mm. Batman Begins, he's using the prototypes from Wayne Enterprises or indeed the Vision, particularly its militaristic division. And you know, in an era in which people, I mean, particularly maybe the States, you know, people drive SUVs that are meant for <laughs> combat more than actually taking your kids to school and people wear mm -hmm. Kevlar and people do all these sorts of things. Uh, it is again this reflection of uh, wider anxieties, wider trends, wider interests mm. that superheroes uh, are noted for. And celebrated for. Mm. Do you think this is part of the same tendency that means we've moved away from, say, secret identities, which now seem quite hokey in the movies? Um, you know, Tony Stark at the end of the first Iron Man basically yeah. says, oh, well, I'm Iron Man, you know, fuck it, I'm Iron Man, doesn't matter. <laughs> because we're not willing to accept the kind of Clark Kent putting his glasses on and, you know, no one knows who he is anymore. Um, I don't know, I worry that, I worry, I don't <laughs> lie awake at night worrying about it, but I do wonder. Um, as more reality creeps into superhero story, stories, are we missing out on some of the things that made superhero stories special? Oh. I mean, I don't know, when you, when you were just talking about um, associating superheroes with the military and, and with um, government, I was thinking about, is that how they're getting away with just the mass destruction from beginning to end, you know, in, um, in Avengers or anything like that by saying, um, either the government, you have those characters that sort of say, and look what you're doing to the city, this is terrible, but mm. you're getting rid of the aliens, so that's probably a good <laughs> thing. Um, but yeah, is it a way of just, you know, kind of owning and trying to make up for these extra, you know, non-realistic things that happen mm. um, as a way of kind of grounding it in reality, but also kind of trying to get away with that, I guess, cinematic you know, sensation that, yeah. That, yeah. that comes along with the genre as well. Well, I mean, they have that veneer of sociopolitical relevance, which makes us read into things. Uh, but whenever the uh, critical lens gets too focused, they can just go, oh, but it's just superheroes, so don't worry about yeah, it. Yeah. So Christopher Nolan right famously in interviews, <laughs> particularly for The Dark Knight Rises, where it seemed to sort of uh, critique or even just outright criticise uh, so activist movements mm -hmm. like Occupy Wall Street. He went, yeah, but he's not really right-wing because it's a superhero thing, so you're reading too much into it. Mm. So they can have the sort of uh, kind of gesture to or obliquely reference mm. things that are happening in the real world. We go, oh, superheroes have grown up. But if the attention, if the heat ever gets turned up too much, they go, yeah, but it's just a bunch of guys yeah. punching each other. But uh, I mean, like even in the case of things like Daredevil, I mean, they're so grounded, the Netflix shows. Do you find that, that the Netflix shows are so grounded? Mm. They're, they're trying to be the street level mm. vigilantes. That's some of the joys falling out of it. Yeah, look, there's, I will always go to bat for Daredevil Fighting Ninjas. Daredevil Fighting Ninjas is my happy place. Um, but it definitely limits the kind of stories you can tell, certainly. Yeah. I do notice that. Um, in terms of, I don't know, we, you mentioned power fantasies. Yeah. Our super superhero stories are always called out for being adolescent power fantasies. Yeah. And in terms of morality, do you think that's true? And if it's true, is that a bad thing? I don't know. I mean, I... As a kid, I loved the idea of having powers and having more control and 
um, you know, it was my goal. <laughs> you know, I wanted to swoop in and do good. I wanted to have all the powers. I wanted to, I made up my own superheroes and things like that. So I can't deny that there, there is a power fantasy there. But I think there's something universal about, you know, that desire for control and uniqueness um, and purpose. But there's also um, bad when the power fantasies are from one particular group of people about their particular kind of power that gets reinforced. Um, so for example, a cis white man's power fantasy will be different to my power fantasy, I suppose. You know, it's who is controlling what fantasies we proliferate, I think is mm. interesting. I mean, there's a wonderful book all about this, which is Amazing Ventures of Cavalier and Clay, which is by the Jewish American writer, Michael Chabon. And it's set in the 1940s, kind of 1930s, 1940s golden age of the American comic book industry, which two uh, European immigrants, kind of like most of the key creators were, create the escapist. Mm -hmm. And at one point, one of the creators reflects that the criticism leveled against superheroes, that they're just escapism, is actually one of the best things uh, about them. But as the book progresses, what's interesting is they're creating, because they're European immigrants, they're creating this sort of Nazi smashing icon paralleling Captain America called the escapist. And it's sort of this kind of this trill for them to enact these kind of fantasies that can never uh, happen mm. in the real world, you know, punching Hitler in the jaw and, and the like. But later in the book, when they have a bit of distance on the thing, they reflect that whether they were creating another generation of men who valorized only strength. And they worried that in kind of using this kind of power fantasy that they were kind of creating a whole, a whole another generation of that. So, and I think most audiences are smart, despite what we're led to believe. I've done a little bit of audience research in and around comic book adaptations, and most people go into with their eyes open, recognizing that it's a power fantasy, mm -hmm. and that the allusions to, to real world things can give it a bit of uh, texture, but to confuse it with the real world, uh, you know, it is rare. Hmm. Most people are, are pretty clued in, clued in, I think. <laughs> I hope. I don't know. We have seen in the States some um, SWAT teams actually using the Punisher logo. Yeah. Um, which mm. I find very disquieting. Mm. Yes. Um, so sometimes those lines between reality and fantasy do blur, even on an official kind of oh, state absolutely. level. Well, I mean, you had, you know, uh, World War II bombers that would have Wonder Woman and other superhero characters and mm -hmm. combo characters and Betty Boop and all on the side of, of their jet mm -hmm. or planes and things like that. Uh, when they're used for propaganda. Yes. When I was doing some research for this panel, I found some war propaganda that was encouraging people to make victory gardens, which are um, people growing their own food and vegetables. And Robin and Batman were on the poster with you know arms of fruit and vegetables, looking really happy with themselves. So it is interesting then when you use those power fantasy or those people yeah. um, to you know say things or, or encourage behaviour in reality. That's a really tame end of the World War II propaganda. <laughs> you should have Googled it a little bit further until you get to some of the more... Uh, more disquieting yeah, yeah, things. Some, yeah, the, yeah, for sure. And I mean, it was funny because recently we had on Twitter uh, following Charlottesville, a lot of people were posting about how comics hate Nazis. I think Gail Simone, mm -hmm. the writer, had started that hashtag, which seemed to totally bypass... I mean, lots of pictures of you know Captain America and Teenage Ninja Turtles punching uh, uh, Hitler or whoever it might be, but seem to ignore the kind of terrible racist caricatures mm. and all the sort of, the, the worst part. And it's that sort of, uh, 
And that's what's interesting about superheroes is you have to take the bad with the good and you have to look back mm. at the, the 80 plus years that they've been on the comic book page and you know, more recently movies, TV shows and everything else and to see how they are that sort of immediate reflection mm. of the best and worst in, in society from yeah. time to time. Well, it's exactly that history that makes some of this discussion so difficult. Yeah. So when characters have been around for 80 years, they've had stories by hundreds of writers, thousands of stories, mm -hmm. and you can pick and choose almost any moral position yeah. you want. When um, Superman killed the enemy at the end of Man of Steel, and a lot of people were outraged, Superman doesn't yeah. kill. And immediately some people got online and went, he, yes, he does, he's an example of him killing. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, well, that was one time that was written out of continuity about three minutes but later. It's kind of like the Bible. It's so conflicting and yeah. contradictory, and it's so long that you could probably find something to support any interpretation mm -hmm. and any position, which is why, I mean, say, when uh, Wonder Woman lost the UN ambassadorship, mm -hmm. so just last year, Wonder Woman, before, pre the movie, was made an honorary ambassador, and many people working at the UN felt that this was a poor choice because she'd been sexualized so often in the comics, and she lost that position, the, the fictional character lost that position. And, it's, and that's true, that's a, an accurate criticism of uh, Wonder Woman if you look at certain artists, mm -hmm. if you look at like Frank Cho or whoever else. But then there's a whole other line of Wonder Woman comics and, uh, written and drawn by mm -hmm. great people like Nicholas Scott and Gail mm -hmm. Simone, which is a totally wonderful wor version of Wonder Woman. Mm -hmm. And sometimes these, these two versions, or multiple versions, are at loggerheads with each other. Mm -hmm. and, uh, as you say, anyone can find any version mm. to support any any particular stance. I imagine mm. them being vetted like, you know, politicians need to be with people going through all of the back issues <laughs> yeah. trying to find the exact right examples. Which is funny because um, when we were talking earlier, I was asking if, um, if, you know, why don't Marvel and DC create just completely new superheroes? Mm. Like, make them perhaps more relevant because a lot of these myths, like the myth of Wonder Woman and, you know, regardless of how we ground them and interpret them for the time, they've still been with us for a really long time mm -hmm. and steeped in times where they were, well, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of, you know, white, straight, super male superheroes and that's just a reality. So if we were going to go ahead and make a whole bunch of female-led superhero films, there's not a you know, raft of them mm. to draw from that, that necessarily resonate as well as the ones, you know, mm. that we've been mentioning, like Wonder Woman and Batman and things like that. I mean, I loved Spider-Woman. She was awesome. Um, Huntress is great. Mm. You know, she could come out of the, you know, comics and on screen. She has uh, a little bit with, um, what was it, Birds of Prey? Yeah, that's mm -hmm. right. Um, and so, and that whole thing was great. And that's spun off a whole bunch of comics. Um, but I think it was still perhaps not quite as successful as yeah. these franchises we've been talking about. It's interesting you mention the kind of pre-existing intellectual property because I, was, I would add that to the conversation of why superheroes, why now? Why are they yeah. so popular? And I think also along with cultural reasons, it was technology caught up with yeah. superhero visuals. So superhero movies are now like the way to um, showcase new special effects, yeah. Yeah. which used to be science fiction movies and is now superhero movies, I feel. And also it's just about pre-existing intellectual property. They worked out, hey, everyone knows Spider-Man, we should make more Spider-Man stuff. Well, superheroes are great spreadable content. Mm. Uh, I mean, you can get a film out of Oliver Twist, but you're not gonna get a teen park ride, a mobile phone app, a lunchbox. <laughs> the Oliver Twist universe. Yeah, whereas Spider-Man, Batman, Wonder Woman, you can get a, you know, the teen park ride, the interactive experience, and they spread across mm. uh, 
I mean, they're ultimate transmedia icons along with Disney princesses. Mm -hmm. And so why it's really important for every conglomerate like Time Warner and the Walt Disney Company to own a comic book company. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, Disney bought Marvel in 2009. Time Warner has owned uh, DC for a long time. Netflix bought Miller World. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but they create new Disney princesses. That's you know. true. Well, they, I mean, they do and they don't <laughs> because they're always based on a, I mean, uh, mythology or fairy tales. Mm. Mm. So they, they renovate them and they bring they them back. They renovate them. But uh, they do that with the superheroes too. Uh, and some stick, like Miss Marvel is very popular. I'd imagine she'll stay around for a long mm. time to come. And some uh, don't last, the, you know, because of nostalgia. Mm. It wasn't a great back when Bruce Wayne yeah, was Batman. Yeah. Let's go back to that. It wasn't a great back when Steve Rogers Well, I guess they did renovate Batwoman, didn't they? Yeah. And they attempted to be really, um, you know, considerate or, or thoughtful of how they renovated her, yeah. um, for want of a better term. Um, and then, yeah, I, I just... I just, I'm so baffled why she didn't stick around, you know, in, in her incarnation, I suppose, but that's probably my, my personal thing that I need to get over. But um, yeah, I think it's interesting that the way that we r renovate them speaks to the time, but then what makes that interpretation stick or not, you know, is another question as well. The word myths come up a few times, and one yeah. thing I do think is interesting is, yeah, a lot of the time people do compare superheroes as modern mythology, but the big difference is that mythology wasn't owned by massive multinational That's corporations. <laughs> um, so how do we balance our love of these characters with perhaps the fact that they are owned lock, stock and barrel by massive corporations who may have very different moral codes than the characters they own? Mm. I mean, we're in an era of... of participation. I mean, we have been for 15 plus years. So fans aren't happy with what they're seeing on screen or on the comic book page. They take ownership of the character. Could potentially and have more say than ever. Yeah, oh, definitely more say than ever. I mean, comics, to be fair, have always tried to narrow the gap between producers and consumers, mm -hmm. whether it was, you know, Stan Lee's soapbox in the 1960s or appearances at comic book conventions. And comic book fans, uh, one of the reasons why they are so popular today is because they were the earliest adopters of the web, because they got it because they've been part of virtual communities for decades. And so while the rest of us were looking for emails, they were you know, creating the web in their image and moving these characters to the center of popular culture. And there has always kind of been that back and forth between the industry and the audience. I mean, even to use the example you pointed to, where the weapons manufacturer, or whatever they want to call themselves, uh, had a sponsorship deal with Marvel, the fans got on that, and through pressure, that deal was dropped. Mm. So I do feel like if we're not happy with what we see, as you rightly point out, we have a bigger voice than we ever had before. And so versions are thrown out and so on. The problem is though, it's of course, it's an echo chamber. So a finite audience, which might be the long-standing comic book fans who run into cool news or whatever else can say, well, we don't want uh, the Falcon version of Captain America. We don't want Miss Marvel. We don't want the Asian American version of, uh, of the Hulk. We want the classical ones. And, and then, you know, sometimes uh, that voice is amplified beyond its actual, uh, you know, the size mm. of the audience. Mm. I do, and I, I'm certainly not the first person to point this out, but I do think there is a grand irony in Marvel training people to sit through the credits of their movies mm -hmm. when they've been so bad at crediting the creators of the characters you're watching in those movies yes. throughout yeah. the years. Yeah. Um, so They're better than DC, I think. 
I mean, I think that's a pretty low bar when <laughs> that it comes is to true. comic book history. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. Um, so we can love these characters, but at the same time, we're enjoying the, the stories of these characters. Potentially, the actual human beings working on the characters mm. are not being treated very well yeah. um, throughout history. The comic book industry is, um, has so many stories of creators being treated terribly. Yeah. Um, there is part of me that would actually love to see these characters fall into public domain. Mm. So they would become like Robin Hood or like Hercules. Yeah. And then we would see anybody could write a Batman story. Anybody could write an Iron Man mm. story. I feel like they've been around for long enough that that should be on the table, but that is a utopian thought that will but, never uh, be. Yeah, I was going to say it. <laughs> <laughs> which, which goes back to your point about why we never see new superheroes, mm. because, because comic book creators... Down and well, their I mean, movies are planned out for the next decade. So <laughs> well, it's, not even, it's not even that. If I was a comic book creator, I mean, this is, uh, you would not produce a character, a new hero for Marvel or DC because you no. will not own that. Yeah. So you will wait till you work for a creator-owned uh, publisher like Image or Mineral World or some equivalent because you don't want to create the next Harley Quinn or Bane or any of those recent characters who've been added to the, the Batman mythos or similar uh, that become the base of movies and merchandise and you don't see anything from mm. that. So I'll just you, use the Joker you, again, yeah. you know, because why would I waste, you know, my great character on uh, something going to get paid a pittance for? Mm. Um, if superheroes were once stories for children and are now primarily consumed by adults, what do you think that's done to the morality of superhero stories? I definitely think it's complicated it. I mean, mm. I think that... Um, I mean, I'm going out on a limb here and presuming that the morals are pretty relatively black and white for, for or at least the stories are simpler mm -hmm. um, for children, whereas for adults, we're often looking for more from a story because we know, we, we get to a point where we're like, that's not true, you know, and we start to want to investigate these things. So I was really drawn to um, Jessica Jones, for example, and these um, ones where you know, she's not a particularly nice person, but she's going through a lot of really complicated stuff and she's had a, you know, and then you start to look for characters that you can learn things from and either to learn how to not be or how to be within that really complicated situation and whether it be, you know, um, alcoholism or, you know, she has a lot of PTSD and the control of, um, Oh my goodness, his name has just completely escaped me. Uh, Who's Kilgrave? Who? Kilgrave, yeah. Um, and there's, I think they walked that line relatively well, but I mean, it could have gone awry. But that complicated uh, story was gripping for me because I felt like it was saying something that yeah. was quite relevant, I guess, you know, for that, for this time, you know, about, yeah. So I think. Um, what it does to morals is complicate them and makes them complex. It makes them more compelling stories for me personally. I mm -hmm. find characters who are morally complex, who who are, you know question themselves because of the powers that they get, and also are, are made outside and made to give up a lot of things. It's certainly basically what I love about stories is when they put people um, gives them superpowers and make that their crucible, like that's the thing that they have to deal with, yeah. as opposed to a, a, a supervillain, unless that supervillain is speaking directly to that morally complex problem. Yeah. It's like I have superpowers, but I'm really not good at this, or I'm not doing so well, mm -hmm. or um, I have superpowers, but yeah, I, I, they're the kinds of stories that resonate with me as an adult, yeah. so. 
Yeah, I mean, the great thing about, I mean, superheroes is because they're a genre and now everybody knows superheroes, even if you never read a comic, we've had 15 plus years of movies and TV shows. There is a familiarity there and there's a shorthand with the audience or the reader or whoever it might be. So when you do a show like Jessica Jones and it's someone who's suffering PTSD, but she's also a superhero, the shorthand with the audience uh, means that that's created, it's instantly more complex and nuanced because mm. the strongest amongst us mm. is still wrestling with all these problems. I mean, that's what kind of Stan Lee innovated in the 1960s mm. with his equally cursed and blessed heroes. And we're seeing it again, whether it's something like Jessica Jones or whether it's something like Logan, that only, I mean, not only works, but if it was a quote unquote original film, wouldn't have the same resonance. But because these are superheroic figures, uh, there is a sort of a, uh, a kind of uh, a tragedy there that would have been lacking otherwise. And the, their morality is more interesting because we expect them to be whiter than white and, 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 mm -hmm. and, and, and the best of us. And when they fail to do that or they struggle to do that, uh, it's more compelling than if they were an otherwise average Joe. Mm. I do like that all of the Netflix shows were all about something. So about gentrification, about PTSD. Mm -hmm. And then you had Iron Fist, which was about... Punching? Punching. Punching, yeah. I think. Curly <laughs> hair, that cultural about. appropriation. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know it didn't really have a theme. No. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I watched two episodes of it, and that was two episodes <laughs> too many, so I'm really not qualified to, to comment on Iron um, Fist. What changes do you think, morally speaking, superheroes go through moving from comic books onto the big screen or the small screen? What changes do they go through morally? Yeah, because I, I have noticed I think there's a lot more killing in superhero movies than there are in superhero comics. Even yeah. Captain America and Iron Man are just happily throwing people off the helicarrier in the Avengers. Do that's you think true. that's yeah. because of the change of medium? Apparently, I mean, the very similitude of a movie, because it's live action actors, even if it's all CGI bells and whistles, demands consequences. So, uh, you know, people fall off buildings, they're not likely to get up from that, or, and so on. So I think the change, I mean, the, the expectation of greater realism that comes with a live action medium means that we then have to think about the consequences, uh, even if, it, you know, a quip from uh, Tony Stark, Robert Downey Jr. seems to gloss over, mm -hmm. uh, you're still the question, they're not going to get back up, are they? <laughs> mm, that's true, because you're watching, you're, because of the fast pace of the movie, you're not actually considering the moral implications of everything that they're doing. You're just like, oh, Tony Stark's being Tony Stark, and that's funny, yeah. and then throwing people off buildings. Um, whereas, do you think in the TV series then, because there is that extended format, there's more room to get into the moral complexity of these characters? There's more time to sort of build relationships with the people around them and, and you know, have that go wrong over mm. here and have that, you know, and it not necessarily just being about there's a supervillain or there's a drug deal or there's something I need to stop, mm. you know, and we have time mm. to talk about, you know, Daredevil's backstory with Stick and we have time to talk about Jessica Jones and her best friend. Mm. So I think potentially, yes, that mm. the format allows for more investigation, which is really interesting. Pushed far enough, then you end up with like Zack Snyder's Man of Steel, which mm -hmm. is actually a fascinating mess of a movie where you have Superman kills at the end. You also have Superman kind of symbolically causing 9-11 rather than stopping 9-11, yeah. which struck me as a very strange decision for it to make. Yeah, uh, I mean, the, the, I mean, superheroes have always toppled buildings. And I mean, the first uh, superhero crossover ever was I think Marvel Comics 8, uh, 
I think I know this Marvel comic said it was, <laughs> it was Human Torch, Submariner teaming up, having a, a fight little level. Mm-hmm. New York, they dropped buildings like dominoes, and that continued for you know seventy years. And then nine eleven happened, and people went, "Oh crap, mm-hmm. uh, this isn't carefree anymore." Mm. Art Spiegelman wrote a great comic about it called "In the Shadow of No Towers," and every comic published since nine eleven has been in the shadow of those no towers. Mm. And what they'll often do is they'll find ways to gesture to the fact that that building was empty. Mm. or nobody yeah, was yeah, hurt yeah. or oh every, it was night time so everybody was off yeah. and you'll have these sort yeah. of little sort of gestures whether the captions or something a character says so we we didn't go back to the careless destruction or if you do have that careless destruction it becomes the dramatic premises as it did in the mm. Civil War comic of 2006 mm-hmm. which became the film of last year and Zack Snyder seemed to miss that whole mm. thing and then uh, and Proceeded there was to. yeah give us this sort of wild uh, sort of abandon uh, just uh, uh, topple uh, Metropolis uh, and I and we hadn't seen that in a long time mm. the response to it I mean Batman vs Superman is partly an apology for that mm. uh, and it becomes a dramatic premise of that but I'm not going to credit them with the foresight that they had, they had yeah. planted that, but rather they were like, oh, people seem really ticked off. We need to make it the premise mm. of the film. And that's why everyone's motivation doesn't make any sense. It doesn't quite make sense why the people of the world love Superman and hate Batman. Mm. It makes no sense in that context. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I'm sure Justice League will clear everything up. <laughs> slightly tangential question, but I'm just going to put it out there. Has anyone written about the relationship between superheroes and buildings, not necessarily toppling them, but sitting on them, yeah. looking out from them, mm-hmm. um, you know, sitting on um, uh, the, the stairwells yeah. and things that go aside? There were a lot of epiphanies happen there, a lot of spying happens there, you know, um, standing next to the gargoyles yeah. on the building, like though that imagery, you know, says so much yeah. about, you know, mm. all of what we've been talking about already, like surveillance and things like yeah. that, but also being an outsider and, and places of repose and things like that. So I was wondering in your academic research, has that come up? There's a whole book called Comics in the City, which is a really good edited collection. And I mean, what's great about superheroes is that they're, as I said, you know, they're part of this mythological tradition, but Westerns are sort of, sort of outdated, unless it's a Tarantino or a Coen Brothers mm-hmm. film. People don't care about the Western. But the superhero is basically the, the, the Westerner elevated to near omnipotence and put in an urban environment. And comics lend themselves to the city because they are vertical. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, they, and I mean, even when, say, The Dark Knight was released in its sequel, uh, it, when you saw it in IMAX, it would have a vertical aspect mm-hmm. ratio because that's how, when they look cool, because they stand tall on tall buildings, mm. and they're built for that. And of course they emerged in the 1930s, which was a response to modernity. I mean, what was Superman? Superman was able to leap tall buildings in mm. a single Progress. bound. Uh, yeah, yeah. Everything he was measured against was measured from the machine age. You know, so he was faster than a speeding bullet. He was more powerful than mm. a locomotive. He was able to leap tall buildings. Whereas previously, Tarzan or even Phantom and other characters were measured against the natural world. Natural. So superheroes yeah. are a response. And what they've done is they reposition that frontier between sort of community and conformity and lawlessness and uncertainty that was the Old West to modern urban streets. And, uh, and that's why they probably have a resonance in a way and why we, one of the reasons why we tend not to slip back into the Western or even the traditional action movie of the 80s and the 90s because we don't need them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Perhaps. Hmm. Um, with the Punisher series about to drop, do you think it is true that there's no good time for a Punisher series? Is there a place for a brutal anti-hero murderer superhero? 
I mean, it's always place. I mean, it depends, <laughs> depends, on, it depends on how you it's do it, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, it's really, I don't know. I mean, I just finished reading The Punisher by um, the Garth Ennis um, tome. And I mean, I loved it. Mm -hmm. I, I really enjoyed the comic. But he has a, um, a statement at the front talking about all of the, um, you know, controversy that goes around The Punisher. And he sort of says, you know, I'm not trying to make any political statements here. I'm just trying to entertain. And that's what I'm doing is essentially my very, sh you know, <laughs> short version of what he said. It's worth reading because it was like, it's interesting that he put that in the front as almost like a justification or like a just a, just so you know, like this is the Punisher and this is what he's going to do and da 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 and Frank is back. And then, you know, we go over and it's, it's pretty violent. It's a violent comic and I mean, I can't even describe what draws me to it, I suppose, but the TV series is going to be really interesting, I think. I'm not sure where I stand on it. I think I would have to see. Mm. <laughs> how it's presented. And sometimes we things get lost in translation, like in the Watchmen movie. I felt like the, the point of Rorschach in the Watchmen comic is he's a disgusting, brutal like man. And then in the movie, he's being shot from below with lightning behind him, mm. and you're like, Rorschach's rad. And I'm like, yeah. I'm not quite sure that's what Alan Moore was shooting for. No, yeah. I mean, they're all versions of Batman. Mm. Like with the exception of Doctor Manhattan, everyone you know the, the billionaire, the, mm -hmm. the kind of the, the, the gadgets obsessed character. Rorschach was the the vigilante aspect, uh, mm. kind of gun seed, really. Mm. Mm. I think um, we're actually out of time, so um, thank you all for coming, and please join me in thanking our guests. You've been listening to an Acme Conversations podcast. Visit acme.net.au for information about upcoming events, exhibitions and film screenings.